Oh, good morning, dear sisters. I'm I'm really impressed that you're here. <laughs> I mean, the weather outside is miserable, and we just came off retreat, and you know, life is it's ramping up, isn't it? It's ramping up. Thanksgiving, you know, it's just it's all starting to happen. Um, so, bravo, you're here. Uh, Today we're considering two lessons, lessons seven and eight in our study guide through Isaiah. And I want to begin the study of these next ten chapters. Yes, you heard right, (laughs) ten chapters. And I confess that I freaked out, but as I began to see, as I started in on studying this, I started to see this really makes sense. It makes good sense. For all these chapters about are really essentially about one thing. And they also connect with Isaiah 2. And that's why you guys don't have a memory verse on your table this morning or a, a verse because it's the same one that I used the last time. Uh, Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. So you've already got the card. You've already got the verse. And we'll be talking about that. That will come up again and again like the chorus of a song, that that section of, um, of scripture. Um, but anyway, uh, this, these are about God's war on idolatry. And uh, for these chapters uh, in Isaiah, we look at the scripture passage that was the focus of the women's retreat. I wanted to start there. The, folk, the scripture passage that was the focus of the retreat last weekend was Mark 4, 35 through 41. Um, so I'm going to start with that. This is what it says. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. By the way, that was one of my favorite things, was seeing that picture of Jesus sleeping, because like I never think about Jesus sleeping. But anyway, okay, so he was sleeping in the stern and on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care? Don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the wind, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have so little faith? Essentially, he said, I'm in the boat. I'm here. I'm in the boat with you. They were terrified. Then they were afraid of him, and they said, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And I love, I love it when he says, hush, be still, because I imagine. That's the kind of thing I say to my dog. I say, go lay down, you know, go lay down. And essentially that's what Jesus was saying. That's who our God is. And he was saying, you know, you do have faith. You have little faith, though. You woke me up. You called on me, and these next chapters are all about God saying the same thing. Why don't you call on me? <laughs> so the disciples question, don't you care if we drown? It echoes one of the basic questions that we humans ask of God. In fact, we come to these questions over and over again, especially in our, in our crisis, in any crisis or any suffering. We ask ourselves, does God know? Does he see? 
and essentially the biggest one, does God care? As we read these chapters in Isaiah, we see God's answers to these questions. He says, I know more than you think I know. I see more than you probably ever want me to see. And I care. And I have a plan. And then he bursts out of our God box that we've tried to contain him in, like he did theirs. And he replies, be still and know that I am God. And he says to the wind and the waves, he says it to Judah in these chapters, and he says it to us today. So these chapters are all about oracles. And uh, as I study them, I begin to think, okay, oracles, what, what exactly is an oracle? And apparently, and I, as I dug in a little bit, uh, there are several kinds of oracles, but Isaiah's oracles to the nations are the pronouncement kind. The Bible dictionary said that they were God's words to a situation or a person, even though no word of God had been sought. Specifically, they told what was going to happen. They also frequently uh, condemned sin. And they're given to produce an effect. So the chapters that we've just covered, 1 through 12, they began by focusing on Judah, and they ended with the proclamation to the nations. And now in 13, the table turns. And the chapters, chapter 13 through 23, they begin by focusing on the nations, and they end with Judah. They end focusing on Judah again. Um, although these oracles are about Judah's surrounding neighbor nations, those nations that were actually part, potential partners with Judah in their anti-Assyrian alliances that they tried to make, they were trying to say, okay, uh, you know, you know how we team up with each other when we were trying to ward off bad situations. Well, that's what they were doing too. Um, they're, they weren't actually for those nations' ears. These oracles were never, ever heard by the nations themselves that they were about. So you say, okay, well, <laughs> why? Why were these oracles proclaimed or pronounced? Well, remember I said that the oracles are meant to produce an effect? That effect is this, and I will com- to confess to you, I'm going to out myself right now. This is the book that I took a lot of stuff from. I love this book. And, and this commentary, it's great. It's called The Message of Isaiah by Barry G. Webb. And if, if what I say sounds like too good, it's because it's directly plagiarized from here. Okay? <laughs> So this is my first little plagiarism that's coming up. All right. It's a good, it's good. This is what Barry says. He says, this, that effect is to remind God's people that no matter what these nations do to her, her final destiny is secure because it is the Lord and not they who shapes the course of history. He is Lord of the nations. And his judgment on them has an ultimate goal. And that is the salvation of his people 
through whom came the salvation of the entire world. Um, so, uh, I, and I told you about that I didn't post a new memory verse, but so I'm going to read you the, the verse that I did last time, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Because this, this verse actually is the plan. It's the, it's couched and it's, it's understood in all these oracles that this is the heart of why God is letting his judgment on these nations do a work. Because he's setting it everything up for this plan. And this is the plan. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I mean, why would you train for war? Because there is no reason. You have, uh, you have someone who judges between the nations and settles all the disputes. We're all looking for that for that day. Um, so here's the list of the nations, just FYI, in in these chapters. Um, that uh, Isaiah delivers oracles to approximately nine nations in some cities, and I'm going to camp out on four of them. Uh, the first I'm going to camp out on is Babylon. The last one is Tyre, and the two in the middle are Moab and Egypt. But the entire list is this. Moab, or Babylon in chapters 13 and 14. Assyria in 14. Philistia in chapter 14. Moab in 15 and 16. Syria and Israel in 17, Ethiopia in chapter 18, Egypt chapter 19, Cush chapter 20, Cush is by the way, I think, the northern part of Egypt, Uh, Babylon in 21 again, Edom in chapter 21, Arabia in chapter 21, and Jerusalem in chapter 22, and Tyre in chapter 23. So, uh, there's a favorite book that I have. This is how we're going to do this. And it's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it was written by Eugene Peterson. It, it examines the Psalms of the Ascents in a devotional kind of manner. And one of the chapters in there focuses on Psalm 121, and and Psalm 121 begins like this. It says, I look up to the mountains, or I look up to the hills. Does my help come from there? No, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Dr. Peterson writes that, and I love this picture, that as the psalmist, this set of pilgrims, I guess they went to festivals and feasts and and they were several times that they were able to several times a year would go. And as they're approaching them, because they live in this pagan society, 
on these different hills, they know that there are different pagan shrines. And these are the high places where their pagan neighbors make sacrifices and beseech their gods for help. However, they are, as we know, and as the people of Israel knew, they were gods that they'd made with their own hands and gods that they could bargain with or they thought they could bargain with. And the psalmist says, do I look, should I go up there and look for help there like they do? Where do I look for help? And as he makes his way to Jerusalem where he's headed, to the temple of the Most High and the only living God, he answers his own question. And he says, no, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in Isaiah 2, we we find out that his mountain is the highest mountain. His hill is the highest hill. It's higher than these others because he alone is the living God. It's the highest of the mountains, and that's important to remember, that the Lord's temple will be established in the future as the highest of the mountains. And as this, this, as I read these, these chapters, I kind of felt like that psalmist. I felt like I was walking through all these oracles and making my pilgrimage to where, to where Jerusalem and walking past these nations and thinking like them, is that where help comes from? Is that where I should turn? Where will my help come from? During the late 8th century BC, Assyria and Egypt were the two arch rivals of the region. And because they were, they had these power plays going back and forth, they made it so unstable for all these other nations. And in their struggle to survive, these nations made alliances with either one or the other. And as God's judgment came, comes to all, Everybody pays for it. Everybody pays for it. So today, we're going to take a walk together, and we're going to look at the high places of these four nations. And the first stop that we're going to make, just like Isaiah did, because it's the most enduring, is Babylon. And that is in chapters 13 and 14. And Babylon's high place, what they turn to, is power. And Isaiah spoke his vision to Babylon and when he did, it must have sounded ridiculous when he wrote this down because because when when he did that, at that time Babylon was very insignificant at that time. It wasn't even a speck on the political stage yet. It would take a hundred years for Babylon to grow to the powerful nation that God would, was going to use in the continuance of this plan that he had. Perhaps Isaiah began with Babylon because of Babylon's history. And Babylon's history reaches all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Now, how many of you know that story? Do y'all know that story? In Genesis? It's all the way back in Genesis where all the people of uh, underneath uh, Nimrod's authority, they built this tower because they wanted to build it like a ziggurat, kind of, only they wanted to keep going so that they could reach God, you know, up into the heavens. Um, and that was when God dispersed all the people. They all, At that time, they all spoke the same language, and he, he, he confused their language so they couldn't communicate. And they all, so they couldn't keep talking about building this tower 
to God. And, um, and so then they all split up. Uh, so, so this tower, it was the first symbol of the arrogance and the pomp and the power of this world. And this is what is characteristic of all these nations in their rebellion against God. So as its power grew, Babylon became the embodiment of human pride and arrogance that exalts itself and rebels against God. And the king of Babylon in chapter 13 is, is a representative figure. It becomes a representative figure. It's representative of that worldly arrogance that defies God and tramples on others in its lust for power. It is this which lies at the heart of every evil, and you can tell this is Barry, okay, um, for which particular nations will be indicted in the following oracles. And it also lies at the heart of all the horrendous acts of inhumanity which human beings and nations commit against one another. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15 say this. This is what the, the um, prophet declares about Babylon. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, for you destroyed the nations of the world. And you said to yourself, and this is really important, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the gods on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will climb to the highest heavens. I will make myself like the most high. Babylon's pride and power was its high place. It was its highest mountain. By its power, it was known. And in its power, it put its trust. And the fall of Babylon merges with the final great day of the Lord. The day when all human arrogance will be judged and all human pomp and power will be exposed. It anticipates the eventual fall of the entire world system that stands in opposition to God. This hasn't happened yet, but it is prophesied that it will. So we're walking along. So we're going to come down off of that hill. I don't think I'm interested in that one. So I'm going to move on down the road. And then I see another one, and it's Moab's. Okay, I'm walking up the hill, and up there, I discover that Moab's high place, where they put their trust, is in prosperity. This is in chapters 15 and 16. Moab has this unique relationship to Israel, because don't forget about the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. <laughs> and when her mother-in-law, Naomi's family, left Bethlehem and took refuge in Moab. They did it because there was a drought. And 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 uh, so they went to Israel, which was, um, they went from Israel to Moab because Israel was uh, experiencing a famine. And uh, so, but we know now that through Ruth, who became Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Messianic line was continued. So even then as now in this oracle, Moab was known for her agricultural prosperity. And it seems that Moab's pride and arrogance stems from her unique position as the breadbasket of, of that region. Chapter 16, 11 through, uh, 8 through 11 speaks of Moab mourning for the cakes of raisins that are all gone now. 
and the farms that are abandoned and the vineyards that are deserted. Moab is likened to a beautiful grapevine that spread north and eastward and west and reached far. And in verse 9 it says, No more shouts of joy over your summer fruits and harvest. Gone now is the gladness. Gone the joy of the harvest. Moab's high place, her prosperity, her abundant harvests. Well, that was her card to play in her vie for protective political alliance. The tribute that she might provide for her protection was gone. Interestingly, God still speaks compassionately to Moab in verses 3 through 5. There was a group of them that were refugees, that that were going to be refugees, and they would say, help us, in verse 3 they cried, defend us against our enemies, because they ran to Israel for help. Protect us from their relentless attack. Do not betray us now that we have escaped. Let our refugees stay among you. Hide them from our enemies until the terror is passed. When oppression and destruction have ended and enemy raiders have disappeared, then God will establish one of David's descendants as king, and he will rule with mercy and truth. He will always do what is just and be eager to do what is right. So you see that through this judgment, Moab's tune has changed. And rather than proud boasting in what cannot save them, and where they were turning to find their security, their prosperity, and their worthless gods. These refugees acknowledge that their only hope is in Israel's God, whose chosen king rules in Zion. Their hope has both immediate and long-term outcomes. Immediately they seek um, for uh, deliverance from the oppressor, but long-range, they hope for a share in the future when an ideal king reigns in Judah, and it has the messianic ring and echoes Isaiah 2 through 4. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established, the highest of the mountains. All the nations will stream to it. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us. We will walk in his ways. He will judge and settle all the disputes of the nations. And they will take up their sword no more or train for war. So we come down from that hill. It's not in prosperity. No, you can't look to prosperity for help. All right, let's keep walking. So, Egypt. Okay, let's go up. What's Egypt got? Resources, religion, and wisdom or education. Isaiah's oracle pronounces judgment on Egypt's high places, the Nile, in verses 5 through 10. And by the way, we're on chapter 19 now. It's religion, in verses 1 through 4. And it's false wisdom, or all that. Yeah, it fails her. This kind of reminds us of the Exodus, doesn't it? When the Lord exposed the powerlessness of Egypt's gods, the emptiness of her wisdom, and the vulnerability of her major resource, the Nile. However, Isaiah's oracle concerning Egypt takes this really startling turn in verses 16 through 25. Verses 16 through 25. He begins with the phrase, in that day, and points beyond the immediate horizon of unfolding historical events to what will be the case when the Lord's plan is fully realized. It reminds me of the way the story ends in The Lord of the Rings. 
Are any of you Lord of the Rings fans besides me? I know, so what? Chaos, chaos, chaos. Horrible, right? But the end, but the end, the clouds, and there's a righteous king who's able to to rule over all, and everything is set right. Finally, everything is set right. It's like that. It uh, It's restoration. It's healing. And it's reconciliation. And the reconciliation that he talks about in these are between Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. He says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. And there will be a monument to the Lord on his borders. It will be a sign and a witness that the Lord of heaven's armies is worshipped in the land of Egypt. When the people cried to the Lord for help, thank the Lord, against those who oppress him, he will send them a savior who will rescue them. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. Yes, they will know the Lord and will give their sacrifices and offerings to him. They will make a vow to the Lord and they will keep it. The Lord will strike Egypt and and then he'll bring healing. For the Egyptians will turn to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas and he will heal them. The Egyptians will turn to the Lord. I mean, think about that. All those gods and goddesses and statues and everything that we know that were there in that day. In that day, Egypt and Assyria will be connected by a highway. The Egyptians and Assyrians will move freely between their lands, and they will both worship God. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing right in the midst of the earth. For the Lord of heaven's armies will say, the Lord of heaven's armies will say, blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, the land I have made. Blessed be Israel, my special possession. It's hard to believe, unless you remember Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Sisters, if we are to be guided by this vision as the rest of Isaiah's book reveals it to us, we will not look to the fulfillment of this dream, which almost seems like a fairy tale in some political or religious realignment of nations, as we have been doing. We will seek it in the eventual triumph of God's kingdom through the suffering, death, and exaltation of Israel's Messiah and our Messiah. In fact, there's no way for true reconciliation that bypasses the cross, sisters. There's no way. Colossians 1, 19-20 For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth 
by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And our last stop. So let's come down away from Egypt. We're walking down the hill. And we're going to walk up, down the road. The last one we're going to stop at is Tyre, who is chapter 23, who was known in the region for their international trade. Um, Their security and their power was in its commercial wealth, which derived from a vibrant international trade. And this is chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. So when he judges them, this is what Isaiah says, because he sees this happening. Whale, you trading ships of Tarshish for the harbor and houses of Tyre are gone. The rumors you heard in Cyprus are all true. Mourn in silence, you people of the coast and you merchants of Sidon. Your traders crossed the sea, sailing over deep waters. They brought you grain from Egypt and harvests from along the Nile, and you were the marketplace of the world. But now you are put to shame. For Tyre, the fortress by the sea, says, Now I am childless and I have no sons or daughters. When Egypt hears the news about Tyre, there will be great sorrow. Send word now to Tarshish. Wait, you people who live in distant lands. You know, the ones they sailed off to. In this silent ruin, all that is left of your once joyous city is this, is that what, what is left? What a long history was yours. Think of all the colonists that you sent to distant places. For Tyre was the Mediterranean region's world trade towers. A lot of people had a great deal to lose in the collapse of Tyre, and when its collapse came, it would hit the Mediterranean world like a Wall Street crash of devastating proportions. They put their trust in their wealth, and it bred in them an illusion of self-sufficiency in which their pride grew. Her wealth will eventually return, it says, but it will return to God. And then it will be given to the people of God as their rightful inheritance. Well, let's see now. It's in just four oracles, the ones that we've looked at closely, as we took our walk toward Jerusalem, the Lord's temple in Zion, And as we gazed at all the other hills where lie the high places of the pagan nations which neighbored Judah, we've seen what they turn to, what they worship, and where they seek help. Power, prosperity, resources, wisdom, education, and wealth from the world, world trade. Does God know? Yes. He knows that his people are tempted to put their trust in these things and not in him, to appeal to politicians and lawyers and others who have power, to value their prosperity and feel safe and secure with their retirement plans, their 401ks and their savings accounts, to assess their resources, their goods, their lifelines, their lucrative jobs, or whatever they may, whatever they may be, uh, to find comfort and security there, to revel in their education and their credentials, to make those their identity, and to say to them, I'm somebody because I'm educated. And it's this that gives me value as a person to know and respect. I'm, or they might say, I'm a person of the world. I travel. 
my husband's family. They, they, they uh, were traveling at one time, and he says, they were like the I've been there club. <laughs> Whenever they get together, well, I've been to Venice, and I've been to, you know. And that was kind of like their value was put into where they've been. Does God see? Yes. He sees that we have faith. He sees that sometimes we put our faith in these things and that they fail us as the storms of life continue to rage on. Does God care? Yes. And he has a plan. He says that he has a plan for the whole world. A hand of judgment on all the nations by which he comes to destroy arrogance and the pride that rises up to usurp his righteous reign over his creation. The pride that says, my will be done. He says that all will happen as he has planned and as he has decided. Who can change his plans? Who can stop him, he says. And I say, who would want to? (laughs) Sisters, you and I have experienced the great day of the Lord. It was a great and terrible day. And it came for us on the day that Jesus died on the cross and took our punishment. He took the full wrath of God's judgment. It was laid on him. And that's where Isaiah is going to go to next. But you and I, in Christ, we too died. And in Christ, we too have risen again to new life. And we are now the new creation with which God plans to populate his new heaven and his new earth. And when God deals with us now, he does so to discipline us, that we might be his disciples. It's the same word, discipline, disciples. That we may do as he says over and over again. It's what he wants, chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. Then at last, the people will look to their creator and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will no longer look to their idols for help. We talked about some of those idols. Power, prosperity. We talked about education. They will, or they or worship the things that they've made with their own hands. They will never again bow down to their Asherah poles, and you can... Put in your own word, my 401k, my IRA, my, you know, whatever. Or worship at the pagan shrines that they have built. Rather, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted. And this is what we need. It will be exalted above all the hills. All of them. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Sisters, where do we look for help? Does God know? Does he see? Does he care? Yes, sisters, yes. Jesus is in our boat. Rest in him, for he is God. Let's pray. Psalm 34. I will praise the Lord. I praise you, Lord, at all times. 
I constantly will speak your praises, Lord. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come. Let us help us, Lord, to talk always about your greatness. Let us always exalt your name. Let us always pray to you, Lord, because you answer. And you free us from all of our fears. And when we look to you for help, we will be radiant for joy and no shadow of shame will darken our faces. In our desperation, Lord, help us, teach us, cause us to pray because you listen. You save me from all my troubles. And you are a guard who surrounds and defends me. Help me, Father, to reach up and taste and see that you are good and grant to me and to all of us the joy that you give to us because we take refuge in you. Amen. (laughs) Sisters, I have an assignment for you, okay? This is something that's just been playing over and over in my mind. It is actually Isaiah 22, so if you want to write this down, I'm hoping that you guys will, in your small groups, look at this kind of carefully. Isaiah 22, verses 8 through 13. From verses 8 through 11, I want you guys, I'm hoping that you guys will talk together about what they did and what these people did not do. By the way, this pertains to Jerusalem. What the people did and what they did not do. And in verse 12, look carefully at what God told them to do. And in verse 13, examine what they did instead. And finally, Psalm 87. And this was actually in our study guide too. How Psalm 87, Psalm 87, goes right along with Isaiah chapter 2. Amazing. Amazing. I don't think they were written anywhere near each other, and yet they are. Anyway, just hope you guys will have a little fun together talking about those things. Okay. See you.